Father, we love you. We are so thankful for the marvelous, wonderful love that you showed us in the person and work of Christ. There was nothing we could do to save ourselves. There was nothing we could do to earn your love. And yet you set your love upon us freely. We thank you for that. Lord, as we hear you speak to us through your word this morning, we pray that the, the refrain would echo in our minds today. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As we sit under your word, we pray that it would shape us, that it would change us, that it would make us more into your image. But that we wouldn't leave here burdened, but that we would leave here joyful today, ready to walk according to your commandments for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Look with me, if you will, at the screen. I'm going to read to us two verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you stick around the church long enough, or maybe I I should say if you stick around church people long enough, sooner or later you'll hear a disagreement about the role we play in salvation. One might say, salvation is all of grace, start to finish. And someone else will say, right, but faith without works is dead. And both of those can, can be made a biblical case. Why? Because both are biblical truths. Well, in our modern thinking, we're, we're pretty uncomfortable with paradox, with two truths that, that seem to say something contrary to one another. We're, we're very uncomfortable with that. We like to be very black and white. Because we pride ourselves on being logical. And it would be illogical for me to stand here before you today and say, I am standing behind this pulpit. And I am also not standing behind this pulpit. They can't both be true, right? They contradict one another. And this is how many of us, unfortunately, tend to think of biblical paradoxes. We think either salvation is all of grace or we contribute somehow by what we do. But I want to suggest to you that as we look at this passage of Scripture that both are true. On the one hand, Christ didn't die on the cross just to make men savable. He died to save his people. And on the other hand, we have a responsibility Emphasis there on response, okay? So the refrain I want us to keep coming back to today in this text is this. We are not saved by obedience. We are saved from disobedience. Repeat that after me. We are not saved by obedience. We are saved from disobedience. Uh, so just to set the background here, we're looking at Philippians. It's a letter written by Paul to a church that he started in the town of Philippi. In Acts 16, we read about the time where Paul and Silas are in prison. 
And at about midnight, they're singing hymns and they're praying and the other prisoners are listening. And as they do this, the Lord sends an earthquake and it opens the prison doors. As Pastor Mark often says, that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother day. But the long story short is that the prison guard there becomes a follower of Jesus. And as a result, the church at Philippi is established. And as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church, the Philippian church is doing quite well. And he's very at home as he writes this letter to them. The church was founded as he was released from prison, and he writes this letter to the Philippians from a prison cell. Now, if you were sitting in a prison cell writing a letter to a church that you had established, let me turn this around on myself. If I were sitting in a prison cell writing to a church that I had planted, it would probably seem a little bit more sour than what Paul has going on here. But from the very first note of this song, it's a song of joy. Paul is singing a song of rejoicing as he writes to the Philippian believers. So we're already getting a vibe in Philippians, uh, kind of a plot twist, right? Paul's in prison. You would expect him to be more negative, but instead his letter is riddled with bullets of joy. In chapter one, he says he's always rejoicing always praying with joy. Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I will remain and continue with all of you for your joy in the faith. That's just chapter one. In chapter two, he commands them to make his joy complete. He says, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. He says, be glad and rejoice with me. And he encourages the church to receive his fellow worker with joy. Then in chapter three, he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. In chapter four, he continues that and he says, rejoice in the Lord always. So this kind of joy that you see in Philippians is countercultural. It's unexpected. It's surprising, isn't it? When everything around him was supposedly falling apart by the world's standards, he was just gushing with joy. And while we're not primarily learning about joy today, the fact that joy is the soundtrack of this movie shouldn't escape our attention. When we're watching a movie, we don't always pay very close attention to the music in the background, but if it were removed, it would change the whole feel of the movie from start to finish, wouldn't it? It sets the tone. And so Paul is setting the tone for this film score, and it's one of great rejoicing. So look at the very first phrase in our text today. We can actually leave that up on the screen if that's all right. The very first phrase of our text today is, so then. So what? Right? So when we see a phrase like, so then, we understand that something preceded this. We understand that Paul isn't just interjecting a random thought. There's a context to what he's saying. So let's look at what Paul is saying. And I'm going to read to you. You can leave that on the screen, but I'm going to read to you the preceding verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, 
being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, so then, my beloved. The so then makes a lot more sense when we consider what Paul has to say here about Jesus. He tells us, have this attitude. So we have a living illustration of what it looks like to work out our salvation. And we're going to get into that in a bit. But it looks like humility. It looks like joy. You remember our soundtrack for the movie? Working out our salvation looks like humility. It looks like joy. And then he says this, my beloved. Again, Paul's joy helps us to understand the the rest of this verse, really the rest of this letter. It's not coming from a place of anger or frustration or disappointment. He's not a disappointed pastor saying, come on, guys, figure it out. No, he's saying, my beloved. Paul refers to the believers at Philippi as his, his dear friends. Paul isn't using the term sarcastically. I like when my, my kid gets me a little frustrated. I go, sweetie? You know, it's, it's, not that kind of, it's not that kind of tone. He's really genuinely saying, I love you guys. And as we sit under the authority of God's word, I want you to feel that today. I want you to sense that you are his beloved. Even though our obedience is weak and imperfect. Even though most of us, if not all of us, have already sinned today. And it's not even 11 a.m. Even though you're still wrestling with your old sin nature, at least you're wrestling with it. And so the Lord says to us today, my beloved. Why does he call us his beloved? To understand this, we have to understand who is loved by God. Jesus. Both when Jesus was being baptized by John and when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. One of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 24 and verses three through four asks this question. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And do you know what it answers? He who has clean hands, and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Well, that rules all of us out. But there's one it doesn't rule out. Jesus. There is one who has clean hands and a pure heart. It's Jesus. And if you are in Christ, Paul tells us in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation. And then Paul continues on in Philippians 2.12, and he says this, just as you have always obeyed. 
See, this, the, the no condemnation that we often talk about from Romans 8.1 has a context. And in our text in Philippians, when Paul says, just as you have always obeyed, we need to understand that being in Christ entails so much more than just the forgiveness of our sins. That's a very important part of our salvation, but that's not the entirety of our salvation. It's never less than forgiveness of sins, but it is so much more. Beyond being forgiven of our sins, we are also set free from the power of sin over us. Well, what does freedom from the power of sin look like? It looks like obedience. And Paul is commending his brothers and sisters at Philippi for walking in that freedom, for obeying. Did anybody ever used to watch uh, Reading Rainbow? When you were a kid? Yeah. And, and is it still on? Or are you watching old episodes? LeVar Burton, you know, from uh, Star Trek fame. His, his catchphrase was, but you don't have to take my word for it. Right? And that's what I want us to understand here is that uh, we want to see what Scripture has to say about this. Does freedom truly look like walking in obedience? I can stand up here and tell you all day long that's what freedom is but you don't have to take my word for it. Jesus tells us in John chapter three, we're all very familiar with God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know that verse, many of us by heart. It's a beautiful treasure. Not many of us are familiar with 20 verses later in John three thirty-six, where he says, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, from the first pages of scripture, we see a theme that can help us understand how to read scripture. That theme is covenant. At creation, God established a covenant with mankind. And part and parcel of covenant, there are, there are certain elements that have to be present for it to be a covenant. One of those has to be a king, and the other element has to be his servants. There's a covenant between two parties, a king and a servant. They're not equal parties. There's an expectation on both parties. The expectation for mankind in creation was You can eat any tree in the garden except this one tree. And if you do as I say, blessings are yours. But if you don't do as I say, it will kill you. And Adam sinned anyway. He transgressed that covenant. And so there's blessing and there's cursing in a covenant. And this helps us to understand all of Scripture. And after Adam sinned, All of their descendants have been born now with a a nature that tends towards sin. When we're given the choice between sin and righteousness, sinners choose sin. It's just our nature. It's what we like. It's what we enjoy. So we needed something to happen to us to release us from the chains of our sin nature. We needed a new nature, and that's exactly what happens that makes us born again. Now, we could get into a theological debate about whether or not people have free will. 
But the real issue is what do you mean by free? Because until and unless God gives us a new heart and puts a new spirit within us and removes the heart of stone from our flesh and gives us a heart of flesh, unless that happens, we're free to do whatever we want. The problem is what we want. We don't want to obey God's righteous commands. We want the blessing, but we don't want the burden. We want life, but we don't want obedience unless we're given a new heart, a new nature. But when we have been given that new heart, and as a result, we repent or turn away from our sin, then we really have been set free. Then your will truly is liberated. Not only from the consequences of sin, but from its power over us. As those who really do have freed wills, obedience is possible. When you go to an amusement park or a a sporting event or a concert, there's something you have to purchase to get in, right? What do you purchase to get into a concert? A ticket, right? And if a police officer pulls you over for going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, he might write you something called a, a ticket, right? So we have concert tickets, speeding tickets. Well, what do you think would happen if I, tomorrow afternoon, I drove down to the county courthouse and I said, I'd like to purchase one ticket, please. Ticket for what? Well, I'd like to purchase a speeding ticket so that I can speed. Yeah, that's exactly what they would do. They'd laugh at me. Well, sometimes in an effort to defend the sovereignty of God in salvation, we overcorrect into the ditch of sloppy grace. We say, well, if I'm saved by grace alone, if Christ died for my sins, I might as well enjoy it. That is like going to the courthouse to buy a ticket to speed. It's foolish. We treat what Christ has done for us as an admission ticket to allow us to enter or worse, to remain in disobedience to his law. But the gospel is the reversal of that. The gospel says you used to drive over the spiritual speed limit because your foot was taped, superglued, and nailed to the gas pedal and into the floor. But God, being rich in mercy, untaped, unglued, and unnailed your foot, and you are now free from sin, and now you are servants of righteousness. We're free to obey God's law. And Paul, in our text here, commands the Philippians, or rather commends the Philippians for their embrace of their new position in Christ as freed, as obedient, no longer slaves to sin. Remember, we are not saved by obedience. We are saved from what? From disobedience. We are saved from disobedience. And then Paul continues, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. This is an interesting turn of phrase that Paul uses here. Unfortunately, we read this in our English translations, and and we don't know because we're not very familiar with our Old Testament, but Paul is using language that first century Jews would have immediately recognized was a reference to the Israelites in the Old Testament. He was parodying something 
Moses said in Deuteronomy about the Israelites. And in fact, this whole section down into verses 14 through 18, uh, Paul is uh, riffing on, if you will, some Old Testament language. He's following Christ's example of humility in verses 5 through 11. He compares and contrasts natural Israelites, descendants of Abraham, with spiritual Israelites, Christians, the church. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 31, 27, where Moses says this of the descendants of Abraham. I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. Behold, while I am still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? In other words, Moses is saying, you weren't even obedient while I was here. What would make me think that you're going to start obeying God now that I'm dying? But Paul says the exact opposite of this about the believers at Philippi. He says, you have always obeyed. I saw it with my own eyes, and I'm asking you to keep it up. Now that I'm where I can't check in on you, just keep obeying God. And he says it with confidence. And I heard a fellow pastor this week ask this question about this verse. When is it the easiest time in life to act like a Christian? Right here, right now. I'm doing the best in my Christian walk standing behind this pulpit because all eyes are on me. But it gets challenging when no one's watching, doesn't it? And so Paul seems confident to simply remind them of their obedience and encourage them to continue doing so. Now, the greatest encouragement comes to them not in their own ability, not in their own obedience. That's part of it, but that is not their greatest confidence. Their greatest confidence comes to them in the form of what Christ has already done for them, what he has done for us, and what the Holy Spirit is doing in them. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, so for right now, let's just consider the next verse, or rather the next phrase in verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This particular phrase of the verse is what makes this an often quoted verse, but it's one that is unfortunately more often than not misunderstood because we hear fear and trembling, and understandably, we run that through our very modern filter and take it to mean panic. Be anxious. But Paul is not saying, this is another obscure reference, the Jeff Goldblum movie, The Fly. Paul's not saying, be afraid, be very afraid. No, he's saying that He's saying that when we work out our salvation, it should be done out of Two factors. Fear is reverence, awe, worship, admiration. And trembling is that we need to be mindful and aware of our own inability apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Work out your salvation in worship and dependence. Again, Paul is alluding to something that took place in the Old Testament. And after the Israelites had been set free from slavery in Egypt, Exodus 15 contains a song that Moses led the children of Israel in singing. Verses 14 through 16 say this. The peoples have heard 
they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philista. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Excuse me. So, Old Testament salvation is exodus. They have been brought out of slavery, out of bondage. They've been brought out of Egypt. And who was fearful? That was the surrounding nations. It was the people looking on. It wasn't Israel. They weren't fearful. They were rebellious. And so Paul alludes to that when he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling by comparing them to the Israelites and saying, if they were set free by God's grace and they did not work out their salvation with fear and trembling, if it was the nations around them that were in fear and the Israelites were a a stubborn, stiff-necked, rebellious people, then, Philippian brothers and sisters, why don't we take that fear and turn it into worshipful reverence and dependence instead of fear and panic and anxiety and dread. Pardon me. The writer of Hebrews paraphrases Psalm 95, and he says it this way. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your father's tried me by testing me. This is where we really get to the crux of the matter. We're commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but Paul doesn't just leave it there. I think often when these verses are quoted, we cut it in half, and we say, well, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Good luck. But Paul doesn't just leave it there. He gives the command, and then he gives the grounds for this command. Verse 13 Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you. This is the reason why we can even make an effort to live the Christian life. Let me put it to you this way. Unless God is at work in us, we have nothing to work out. Salvation is all of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So if we have a salvation to work out to begin with, it's because God is working in us. I enjoy working out um, not as many days of the week as I would like to, uh, but somewhere in the neighborhood of one to four days a week, you can find me at the gym. (laughs) Early in the morning, usually. uh, Very early in the morning, meaning I have not eaten most of the time when I'm working out. And there's, there are some benefits to that, um, doing fasted workouts. You know, there's fat-burning advantages to that, and so that's a good thing. But that's just working out before I have breakfast. If I didn't eat dinner the night before, or lunch the day before, or breakfast the day before, if I'd been fasting for 24 hours, or 48, or 72 hours, or going further and further, eventually it becomes counterproductive. There are no longer benefits to working out when there's nothing being put in. Our bodies, the way God's designed us is that we use food as fuel for energy. 
And it's kind of like this, where God works in us the food of the gospel. The difference is that we are passive recipients in receiving his forgiveness. Our role in our salvation comes after that. He works it in us so that we have something to work out. Then Paul continues to tell us exactly what it is that God is doing in us. He says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work. Imagine you leave here today, and God forbid, one of you has a massive heart attack. And you're rushed to the hospital, and your ticker is just done. They're not going to put anything in there to try to make it hold up for another year. It's, it's done. If you don't have a new heart, it's the end of the line for you. But somehow, by some act of providence, a donor's heart is available at exactly the right moment. It's your blood type, and a skilled heart surgeon transplants your new heart into your chest. Did you do something to deserve praise in that scenario? No. On our own, we would have just kicked to the bucket. What part did I play in that? I ate too many Whoppers. That's the role I played. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But you know who did do something praiseworthy? The surgeon, the donor. There was a sacrifice that was made, and there was skill in transplanting that new heart into your chest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, raised us up with him. So let me ask you this, Christian. What makes you different than your unbelieving friends, neighbors, family members? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment because many times in my life, if somebody sprang that question on me, I'd be inclined to say the difference between me and an unbeliever is uh, I put my trust in Christ. I repented of my sins. I surrendered to Jesus as my king. But do you see what I'm doing there? What's the difference between him and me? I. I did this. I did that. Aren't I so spiritual? Aren't I so humble? Aren't I so much more spiritually attuned that I need Jesus? The difference between me and the unbeliever is God. What God is doing in me. Paul spells it out here for us that it is God who is at work in the believer, both to will and to work. You could replace that word will with want or desire. If you desire to live a Christian life, it's because the Holy Spirit has done something in your life. It's not because you did X, Y, or Z. He gets the glory, He gets the credit. It is God who is at work in you both to want him and to work for him. But why did he choose to work in us and not someone else? Paul wrestles with this in Romans 9. He says, I see my fellow Israelites, and I don't understand how he could say this, but he goes, if I could give up my salvation so that they could be saved, I'd do it. 
That's more spiritual than I am. I wouldn't. Sorry. I want to be saved. But Paul somehow says, if I could somehow, just to ensure that they are justified, if I could give up my justification, I would. Really, that's what Christ did on our behalf, isn't it? But Paul continues on in Philippians 2, and he tells us why he is at work in us for his good pleasure. You say, but God is complete. He's not lacking anything in himself. How in the world could he find pleasure in us? We're weak and imperfect and constantly failing. Every step forward I take, it seems like I take two steps back. What could he possibly enjoy about my feeble attempt at Christian living? Well, I'll tell you exactly what he told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Hey, guess what? You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to live up to a a standard of perfection to be a Christian. So often, my generation and younger will look at the, the, the family portraits on social media, and we think that these other families have it all together. We think their house is always clean. We think their kids always get along. But they're not posting the pictures of brother punching his sister because she just bit him and mom rolling her eyes at dad because he's completely oblivious to the chaos around them. You don't have to be perfect. And and please don't compare your life to someone else's because sanctification is a, a progressive thing. It happens throughout the course of our entire lives. When you're forgiven, when you put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are made right with the Father immediately. But it takes the whole rest of our life on earth to be made in more into his image. That's what we call sanctification. Being forgiven is called justification. But sanctification is the thing that keeps happening and happening and happening and happening. And then we have stumble and then it keeps happening. And then every step forward, we take two steps back. But sanctification is an ongoing process. And if you compare your process of sanctification to someone else's, you're going to get bummed out real quick. If you compare it to my process of sanctification, it might give you some great encouragement. Well, I'm doing better than him. But don't compare your process of sanctification to someone else's. It's not the same in each person's life. Christ isn't looking for perfection on our part because Christ provides perfection that we could never provide. He lived a sinless life that we could never live. And he died the death that we deserved to die to pay a debt that we could never afford. I hoped Pastor Wyatt would be here today because I'm about to borrow his phrase. If that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. I'll make sure he knows I use that. Well, I want us to consider what the Christian life looks like. We've seen in our text this morning that obedience is not only commanded in the Christian life, it's normal. It's to be expected. To revisit our analogy of working out, it would be disingenuous for someone to claim to be a bodybuilder, and yet they're 150 pounds overweight, and they eat garbage food all the time, and they never work out. You'd say, you're not a bodybuilder. 
Well, sure I am, because I claim to be one. But we do that with the Christian life. We call ourselves Christians and make no effort to get into the spiritual gym. When we're given a new heart, we're born again. Who gives us a new heart? God. The Holy Spirit replaces our stony heart with a heart of flesh. Does he do that because I did X, Y, or Z? Or does he do it for his good pleasure? Right. So when we're given a new heart, we're born again and we repent. We turn away from our sin. At that very moment, we're fully made right with God. And that's the part of salvation that happens instantaneously. We don't have to work to be forgiven. Dallas Willard famously said that grace isn't opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. So if you hear someone's testimony and they say they were immediately and fully freed, not just from sin, but from the effects and consequences of sin in their life, yeah, I I don't even desire to sin anymore, then they're either lying, which is ironically a sin, or they've been saved for all of about 12 seconds. And you can say, brace yourself, here it comes. You're about to be hit with all sorts of temptation. Now, I don't say that to discourage us this morning. Quite the opposite, actually. I say it to remind us that we have something greater to look forward to. One of the verses from the hymn that we sang earlier today, Come Thou Found, was one that we didn't sing, but let me read this alternate verse to you. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. It's his power that keeps us. We just get the joy and the privilege of joining him in the sanctification process. It's the analogy that I've shared with you before of a parent and a child walking across a flooded street. That child is not secure because of the child's strength. That child might be holding on for dear life to mom or dad's hand. The child is secure because mom and dad are stronger. Your dad is stronger. Your God is stronger than you are. Stronger than you will ever be. It's his power that will keep us. It's a slow process, but it's one that is guaranteed to be accomplished. Paul began his letter to the Philippians with this encouragement from Philippians 1.6, and I want to leave this with us today as well. Paul, would you come forward? We'll sing, uh, Come Thou Fount, to conclude today. Paul says this in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your perfect faithfulness, your unfailing love toward us. Thank you that when you see us, you don't see our sin anymore. Those of us who are in Christ are clothed with his righteousness. So Father, when you look at us, you see your son, his perfect spotless righteousness. So Lord, as we sing this, 
closing hymn, and as we hear a benediction from your word in just a moment, we pray that you would help this truth to sink down deep into our spirits. And as we prayed at the beginning of the message, Lord, as we go out from here, don't let us leave with a burden. Let us leave with a joy and a desire to obey you. In Jesus' name. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.